a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? All right, well, today we are continuing on in our lesson and in our series here in Genesis. So Genesis, this is lesson number 10. We're getting into chapter eight. We're not gonna do all of chapter eight, kind of like we did all of chapter seven last week. So we're doing a good chunk of chapter eight this week, though. And this is chapter eight, verses one to 19, back to dry land. So we saw at the last little bit, of chapter seven, you know, last week, the waters were starting. There we go. You know, Noah was building the ark. God found Noah faithful and trustworthy and and they built the ark and they got all the animals in and it starts to rain. So today we're going to continue on with the narrative of the flood. We're going to look at, again, some of the Babylonian narrative differences. So that that is the Epic of Gilgamesh and look at the differences for some of that, as well as what does this imply and, and how do we take some of this with the biblical narrative? How does this impact our understanding of the scriptures and our understanding of creation and go from there? So let's dig into it. Chapter eight, verses one to 19, we're reading today out of the English Standard Version. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you, 
Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Breaks down into three basic positions and three different parts. Verses 1 to 5, the flood wanes. 6 to 14, dry ground. And then 15 to 19, leaving the ark. We're going to go over some of the math in this too, because I know math always excites people, right? That's, oof, I wake up in the day and say, numbers, let's do it. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subside. Most commentators on this break this up as to 8-1-A and then 8-1-B. And 8-1-A they hold as a, a separate portion. This is a, a separate point that is being made. And it's kind of a pivotal point, really. God remembered Noah. And that's A. But God remembered Noah. And then everything else after that is 8-1-B. The, the point that the author's making here, so really Moses is making here, is that God remembered Noah. He remembered the covenant promise that he had made to Noah. And it was the promise that God had made to Noah to continue life and to continue mankind and animals and to not just wipe everything out completely. He remembered that. Now, you know, the Hebrew here for remembered is not necessarily like what we think. So in an in a English culture and understanding, we think remembered is just it's a mental process. Like, oh, I remembered I left the stove on. I need to go back. Uh, did I close the garage door? I do not remember. It's a mental exercise and a mental exercise only. In Hebrew, it's it's much deeper than that. And, and this with this type of remembrance and this remembering, it is a... Mm, Again, it's kind of a difficult thing to explain in English because our words just, they just don't cut it. It's its remembering with with passion, I guess you could say. It's not just a, a mental exercise of remembrance, but it is a I care about. And so therefore, I'm, I'm continuing to do this. Why is this a pivotal piece and something that really needs to be pointed out? Well, if we look at the Mesopotamian dialogues about the flood narrative. We specifically look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, excuse me, and you, it's Babylonian, but still, if you look at that, which Babylon is a part of Mesopotamia, it's, it's okay, it's all the same. Anyway, when you look into that, there's a stark contrast. All of the narratives, other than the biblical narrative, the gods are upset, they are trying to wipe out absolutely everything, and most of them, they get very upset that humanity survives. They wanted to completely wipe anything out. And so they were mad that Gilgamesh, in the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, they were mad that he survived and that anything came out of it. Really, Sarna, who devoted his life to the study of the old, of well, Genesis and then a few other pieces, but really the Old Testament, put it this way. The gods were terror-struck. Now, this is when discussing the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh and, and the differences between 
that version of the of the flood narrative and the biblical version, talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh, says the gods were terror struck at the forces they themselves had unleashed. They were appalled at the consequences of their own actions over which they no longer had control. So the difference here is, and this is why this is very pivotal, because this is something, remember, when this was written, it was dealing with a group that was surrounded by Mesopotamians. They were hearing the other narrative. This is setting the record straight. No, the gods, air quotes, were not just appalled. The God, capital G, the God, the one God, was in complete control. And he declared this was going to stop. Why? Because he remembered Noah. He remembered his promise to Noah. God was in control. Big, big difference. Now, then it continues on. Yes, you remember also the livestock and everything else. And that's maybe a side item, which is, I don't think that that's really quite accurate. I think it really should have been God remember Noah and the beast and the livestock. But remember, mankind was made to be God's image bearers. He wants a special type of relationship with humanity. So there is a little bit of a difference there. But the other part that comes out from this is verse one is God made that wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. But why? What does wind have to do with this? Is this just a, a, a fancy and kind of poetic way of discussing God shutting the windows of heavens because it rains, right? Usually when you listen to somebody talk about Noah's Ark, they talk about it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Great. But then the water stayed. The water stayed for 150 days, you know, it, and then it started to go down, right? Then it started to go down. Do you really think it stopped raining completely during that 150 days? Or just that torrential rain pour and downpour coming down? But we also see in the scriptures that the fountains or the streams of the earth were pouring into this as well. And it was coming from below and coming from above. What does this wind have to do with anything? Where did this wind come from? Well, I, I would pose that there's actually a natural thing because, again, when, when God does things, we have a tendency to see them in a natural situation and in a natural way. When God works, which, by the way, that, that's not evidence of God not working. That is evidence of God working, and it's evidence of God working in a tangible way in our world. Why would we expect that things that God does in our world wouldn't work in ways that we see things work in our world. That doesn't make it less miraculous. Miraculous healing of somebody. We are amazed because that is very clearly, if you see somebody with a shriveled arm and all of a sudden it extends and it pops out and the bones are healed, that is miraculous. But I've actually seen video of it and you watch the arm unfold and re-extend. It's still visible in a natural way. It's just something that we don't think happens. But oftentimes, God's miracles come through things that naturally occur. It just maybe shouldn't have occurred right then. Or maybe it was going to occur right then anyway, naturally. But the timing is just spot on. And the timing is the miracle. God, God works through our world in what we appear or what we, we take as a somewhat natural way. So I would propose something here. Think about what's happening massive torrential rainfall, 
Earlier when this happened, we discussed the possibility of an earthquake and the crust shifting to open up some of the water from underneath so that that water could come up. Well, this all of a sudden stops and the waters from underneath stop coming up and the waters from above stop coming down. What if there was another earthquake? Again, something that we see as a natural way things naturally work, but God made it, so God working through it in the way that it should work, right? What if there's another earthquake and the tectonic plates shift and the crust shifts ever so much again to close these off? What happens naturally when an earthquake happens just off the shore? You get something. You get something. You get a tsunami. Massive amounts of wind come through with a tsunami. And waves come through with a tsunami. And then you get a little bit of calm. So perhaps the wind that came through was due to this other earthquake, which again would be a natural explanation for something that could have happened. I want to point out really fast, though, the, the word here for wind. God made a wind to go over this, which again points to the supernatural element of this. But the word for wind is ruah. It's Hebrew, ruah, which is the same word that we saw in Genesis 1.12 when the spirit of the Lord, it's another word for spirit, spirit that, that word can translate as spirit and or wind, but it was when the spirit of the Lord or the wind of the Lord was floating over the void, over the waters, okay, during the creation narrative. It's a similarity, right? God's spirit is over the void and then God's spirit goes over in a wind, right, over the waters to make it change. Maybe we experience that as the earthquake, though. I don't know. Just, just a thought. All right. Two to five. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. Now, remember, again, people, you point out, ah, it's 40 days and 40 nights. That doesn't mean that it stopped raining. That just means that the, the constant nonstop raining that was a torrential downpour that was flooding the earth. There was still some rain every now and then that was bringing things in that continued the water and made the water stay at the elevation that it was. Okay. So that rain then stopped. Okay. The heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. Three. And the waters receded from the earth continually. Now, continually here means it gives us an indication that it was gradual. It was a wasn't just a miraculous, the water stopped and the water was gone, right? The rain stopped and it just went, went and disappeared. No, no, no. It gradually receded and took time. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, which meant it stopped raining. It stopped coming up from underneath. Everything had stopped. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, so it's continuing to recede and go down. And all of a sudden, you look out the window and you see just the tops of the mountains. Okay, and we talked about the potential of a tsunami, gets the winds to go through. Potentially that blew out the storm system that was there. So things were cleared out at that point, shifting the, the Earth's crust. Again, you could maybe have a change in landscape at that point. Now, the waters were absorbed into the Earth and they were receding steadily into the, into the ground and out, out from the rivers that were flowing out into the oceans. 
things were returning to what they should be. Now, the mountains of Ararat, this is a range, a mountain range. It's a rather large mountain range, too. It flows all the way from modern-day Turkey into southern Russia and into northwestern Iran. It's a big range, which means Moses likely didn't even know exactly where in the mountain range that the ship was at. It was just a reference point as to in the general region where this was happening. Now, this is something that we do actually see mentioned and pointed out again in 2 Kings. If we look at 2 Kings uh, 19, verse 37, I'm going to go back a little ways though. It's, it's in verse 37, but I want to go back to 35 so we get the context of it too. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Ezherdon, his son, reigned in his place. Lots of fun names, right? Anyway, just giving you some reference so it's not just, hey, some king was killed and then the people ran off. It's just, it is a random piece right there to just pull out from that. But the, the point is just to, to point to the reference of, hey, this, this is a known location, a known mountain range, but it is a broad territory. Okay, this is a very broad territory that this could have landed. The ark could have landed. Continue on with two to five as well. I want to point out a few things here. The months, the months, depending on if you're looking through commentaries, if you're reading through a study Bible, oftentimes they'll have little, little notes. Sometimes some of the study material I was looking at didn't mention the months at all. It's like, you should just obviously know. It should be very apparent to you or could also be the flip side of the coin. We don't know, so we're just not mentioning it. Now, the months here, if we go off of it and we look at what's happening, the months, these are based on the months of the year, not the months of the flood lasting, okay? What makes this confusing is we're not told what year it is, but we are given a reference point. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. We are given a reference point. In Genesis 7, so in chapter 7, verse 11, we are told, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, 
all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were opened. Now, this give us, gives us our reference point of when this started. So it started on the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month of the year on the 17th day of the month. Okay, the months stay congruent. It stays the same, following the same pattern, the same path, which gives us something to where we can actually do the math on. Now, the math becomes really difficult as well because, again, we're not sure which calendar system they were using at the time because there were two different calendar systems. Not to mention it gets complicated a little bit further when you realize the, the ancient Hebrew calendar system, both of them, were not only just lunar calendars, but they were also solar calendars combined. They're not like ours. So ours, they, like ours in modern day, there is a leap year, and there was a leap year for them. Unlike ours, our leap year, we what? We add a day in February to, to make up the difference. Their leap years, they added a month. And they were somewhat, I guess the way we could say it is, it, it would feel somewhat sporadic. You could have two normal years, then a leap year, then a, then a regular year, then a leap year, then two, and then a leap year, and then two again, and then a leap year, and then one. And it's just, it feels kind of sporadic how they, how they would put that all together. So it's very different than ours. And so doing the math based off of all of this, it makes it really difficult to find out the days and, and how long this is. I saw some people say, you know, some commentators saying, oh, it's 377 days, somewhere this, somewhere that. Their calendars weren't even the same length as ours. They were close, but their regular year was 353, 355, 356. A regular year had different amount of days because it was based on lunar and solar. So the way to get a full-on count is really difficult. And even if you go off of our calendar system, the numbers still weren't adding up. So I really don't know where some of them were getting were getting their math. Either that or, you know, I, I need to help my children more with math and, and re, re-educate myself on, on basic addition. Um, there, let's continue on. Six to nine. Six to nine. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window. Now, now remember, let's go back just a second. Go back. At the end of 150 days, we're at verse three, and at the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, so this started on the second month. So on the seventh month, five months in, on the seventh month, on the 17th day, just under five months in, because this had started on the, on the 17th day. So yeah, exactly five months in. Okay. So exactly five months in. The seventh month on the 17th day, the ark came to rest on the mountains. Then it continued in the 10th month on the first day. Okay, so we're starting point right now, coming in in verse six, the starting point is 10th month on the first day of the month. Move from that at the end of 40 days from the 10th month, the start of the 10th month. So that's over a month later, okay? At the end of 40 days from resting on that, and you can see the mountaintops now, Noah opened a window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. So first of all, 40 days after the 10-month mark, so 11 months and not quite a half. Okay, so 11 and a third. He sends out a raven. Now, 
another interesting point to, to point out here from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Babylonian tale, that what they sent out, what Gilgamesh sent out, was a different order and different birds too. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, he sent out a dove, and in this order, a dove, a swallow, and then a raven. Why would you send out the weakest, the weakest bird who doesn't fly very high and cannot go very far first? Just logically, it doesn't seem to make sense. Whereas the biblical account, you send out the raven. They can soar. They can rest. If you've ever seen a murder of crows and a murder of ravens floating up in the air, they can just keep their wings out and just float for a while. And not not to mention, they can survive on carrion, whereas doves can't and swallows don't. So the raven makes sense to send out first, and it makes sense that the raven doesn't come back. Because it can land on the mountaintop and be fine. It can make it from mountaintop to mountaintop. And it can survive on rotting flesh that's sitting there. So it's not a big deal for the raven. It would be a big deal for a dove. So he sends out the raven and the raven goes. And it flies and it's fine. Okay. Then he waits and he sends out the dove. Sent forth a dove. Okay. Sent forth a raven and it went to and fro in the waters right up on the earth. Then... Now, potentially, he sent at the same time, but maybe he waited a little bit. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided. But it came back because it didn't find a place it could rest its foot on, which which means the raven didn't come back. So there is dry land. You can see mountaintops, but nothing close enough for the dove to even get to. So it just came back. Okay. So he waits seven days. So he waits a week. Now, Prior to this, if we if we pull back just a little bit forth, because I keep wanting to jump the gun here, because I, I like to just continue the narrative on, but there is kind of an important part of this. Okay, when we see here in verse nine, get to the second half of verse nine. So he put his hand out and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. Noah is being God representation to the rest of creation. He's showing that tender, loving care like God does. He's not just saying, nope, you're out. Now go and find us land or die. He's showing that tender, loving care. It's not ready yet, so let's pull you back in into safety, being the image bearer of God. 10 to 12, now he waited after that another seven days. So he waits another week and he sent the dove out again, either this same dove or a different dove, whatever. He sends the dove out again. And this time, verse 11, and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Great. It found a branch and there was a leaf on it and it pulled the leaf and brought it back. Good sign. Then he waited another seven days. He waited yet another week and he sent forth the dove again and she did not return to him anymore. There was enough plant life, enough dry ground, enough food, insects, things like that, to where it could survive and sustain by itself out there. So it stayed out. Now we do see a seven and seven. These are full cycles, full weeks. Okay. They were not likely dull, meaning they were not likely unaware of the things that were happening outside. They were likely 
opening up the window, looking out, checking to see what was going on. At this point, they, they've been on the boat for a while. <laughs> Six, probably at this point, seven months after those two weeks, they've been on the boat for seven months, roughly. They're ready to get off the boat. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat for seven months. I have not. But I can imagine if I had been on a boat for seven months, I would be about ready to get off the boat. So sending that the dove out as evidence, they were waiting to get off of this thing, to get back out onto dry land, out of the smell, out of the dung, out of everything else. They were wanting off the ship. 13 to 14. In 600, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and look, and behold, the face of the ground was dry, verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. This is nearly a year of being on the ark. This started with Noah, 600 years, two months in, 17th day of Noah's life, okay? or at least the, the second year of his life, the second month of the year of 600 of his life, 17th day. Then we see the months going from there. That's our reference point. Then we see seven month, 17th day. That's five months later. Then we get the 10th month on the first day. That's two and a half more months. We get an extra 40 days. Okay, that puts us at 11 months and give or take 10 days, depending on the month, right? We are not exactly sure on the calendar, so maybe 11th month, 10 day. Seven days later, the dub brings back an olive leaf. Another seven days later, the dub doesn't return at all. So that's another 14 days. So that's 1124, 61124. Then we move forward to 601st year of his life, month one, day one, and it has dried out. But it's not completely dry. It's just dried out. Now we see it completely dry at 601, second month, 27 day. That is one year and 10 days. Just from looking at months. Now, there, if this was a leap year, there could have been another 28, 29, 30, 31 month day in there as well. So it just depends on how this all went down. But at least one year, and 10 days they were on the ark because the earth, even if it was regional, that area of the earth was flooded. That is a long time to be stuck on a ship, especially when you think about when, when did this get stuck on the mountaintop? It was floating on the waters and then it hit land, hit the mountaintop and it stayed there. What month was that? Seven month. Started at two, that hits that at seven, that's five months. That means, that means there was what? There were seven more months after it hit land. Can you imagine being on a boat that hit land for an additional seven months? Oi, oi, long time, long time. All right, 15 to 19, let's wrap this up. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife. No, no, wait a second. What I was bringing up, I know I could have felt like I'm reading into this and I'm taking the wrong thing out of it. I'm, I'm not. I'm trying to emphasize a point here. They hit dry land, but they didn't jump the gun and get out of the boat. They waited. 
And all of a sudden they saw the mountaintops and they waited and they sent the raven and then they waited. They sent the dove and they waited and then they sent the dove again and it came back with an olive leaf and they waited and then the dove didn't come back at all. Then what did they do? They waited and we see 601st year, first month. And clearly they waited some more because it became the 601st year in the second month and the 27th day. They waited over a year. Then God said to Noah, they waited for God to give them the go-ahead. They waited for the Lord's timing. Why is this important? Think again, comparing this back and forth. And, and I know it feels weird. You've, I, I don't know how many Bible studies you guys have, have paid attention to or done in Genesis. Not many of them that I know of point out and do the comparisons from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Why is this important? Well, this is why we do hermeneutics. This is why we do this. We want to make sure that we're understanding it from the context. We want to get the information that the people it was written to or were being told this originally, we're getting so we can apply that to our lives. They were surrounded by people who believed in the Epic of Gilgamesh. They believed that the gods were mad or they all were surrounded by people who believed the gods were mad and they tried to wipe out mankind. And these Apkalu from the Mesopotamians came and delivered special knowledge to them. They didn't like that. They were trying to get them wiped out. So they created a way to save mankind. And it was mankind battling the gods. That's the other side of the narrative. They're beating off the other side of the narrative. And instead of showing mankind as the heroes and the gods, the villains, they're showing Noah was faithful to God. God saved Noah. Remember, when they, know, when they all got onto the ark, God shut the door of the ark. It doesn't say Noah shut the door of the ark. God closed up the ark and sealed them in to prevent any problems for them. God saved them. God remembered them. God released and got rid of the waters. They were waiting for God to give them the go-ahead to go out and to move forward and to see what his plan was going forward, which is a beautiful thing that we're about to see. 15 again. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth. And here it is. Here's your directive. Almost went full Star Trek, prime directive. Here's your directive. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That sounds very familiar. That sounds very, very familiar to the creation story. So Noah went out, verse 18, Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, they went out by families from the ark. Remember, they went into the ark two by two. It has been an entire year. Some animals, that could be a couple generations. <laughs> you get rabbits on the ark, you've got 900 of them, right? So it just depends. They come out by families. It's no longer just two by two. It had grown. The family of man took care of in an isolated box, took care of 
and ensured the reproduction and the growth and the stability as God's image bearers on earth. During that torrential chaos to wipe everything else out, God sealed everything up, protected them, and then he trusted his image bearers, Noah and his family, to provide and take care of the animals to ensure that life would continue to go on. And his command is the same as the original command at the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth as they had on the ark and things moved out. Okay, God said they waited. They waited for God's command because they needed that. Now, there's another stark contrast here that I want to point out from the the Babylonian epic. That account is a very dark account. Again, they're trying to point out in, in the epic of Gilgamesh, they're trying to point out the atrocities of the gods and how we are, because remember, many gods, they, they toyed with people. They just wanted to amuse themselves and people were a way of amusing themselves and to feed them. Some of them, quite literally, they would supposedly eat the actual people themselves. So it is a dark tale. And according to that, when they when Gilgamesh was able to open up the ark and, and look out and peer and see what was going on, he saw that all of mankind had been turned to clay. We're not getting that here. What we're getting is they're out. They waited for God and God opens the doors and says, go, be fruitful and multiply. And everybody leaves by going. God restarts the purpose of life. One of them. Worship God is the, is the primary for purpose. But the natural, the quote, quote unquote natural purpose is to be fruitful and multiply. Unlike what we're being told everywhere else right now, which is hold off, don't do anything. Produce less. God's call is to be fruitful and to multiply upon, upon the earth. For every living creature, including mankind. And he restarts that. So he does a hard reset. And he goes out with the same direction. Be fruitful and multiply. All right, what can we take away from this? In a time when the natural thought was very bleak and that all was lost, God was in control. He had a plan. And I don't know about you, but sometimes today feels like the natural thought is very bleak. It's very easy to just think bad things. Keep in mind, just like with this, God is in control. Who wrote this? Moses was the one who told this narrative. Moses didn't make it to the promised land. He had to flee Egypt because he was ashamed and terrified that someone was going to find out that he killed a man while defending another, but still he killed a man. He thought he was going to die, and so he ran away. And then God calls him and he comes back and he gets the people out through with God, gets the people out of Egypt and they are wandering the desert and they're complaining to Moses all the time. He understands bad times. He understands hard times. And he is telling his people during a hard time, it looked bleak, but God was in control. God had and has a plan. Now this plan took time. Parts of it happened incredibly fast, very much so supernaturally fast and crazily fast. Other parts of it took natural amount of time. Now, these super fast parts, it's really easy to point and say that's that's a fingerprint. 
right? That's a fingerprint of God because it was supernaturally fast. But we want to make sure that we don't lose the fingerprints of God in the things that feel like a normal time. While it must have been difficult and often painful for Noah and his family, they waited for God's call and for God's permission to move forward. It wasn't time yet, and they waited. They lived and they waited on the ark for over a year, even after they observed that the, the land was dry. Right? They could already see it was dry. They waited for God to give them the go-ahead. Noah knew things were bad prior to the flood, but he likely didn't think they were full destruction bad. But he trusted God. They must have wanted off that ship even after things hadn't been fully destroyed. They wanted off the ship. But they again trusted God. How's your trust in God holding up in this difficult and challenging time? Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for today. Thank you for being who you are, being a God who sends rescue, a God who loves justice, but also loves and does mercy and does grace. Thank you. It's, it's almost impossible to talk about that without talking about Jesus and how he saved and how he came as our propitiation for our sin so that we can have that right relationship with you. Thank you, God. And as we look around our world and we see the, the difficult and troubling times that we're going through, it seems like one thing after another, after another, after another, like it's never going to end. And we just thank you for who you are. Thank you for being the God who fulfills his promises and holds on to his promises and remembers his people. We trust you and we're waiting on you. When you're ready, tell us to move. Amen. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for joining again this week. Hope you got something out of it. We will see you guys next time. Have a great one. God bless. Bye-bye.